You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hillary Clinton is making noise, or some Hillary adjacent folks are making noise because someone out there is sending up trial balloons. But Hillary Clinton, or someone making noise about Hillary running for president in 2020. Of course, she wants to run. She shouldn't run. But here's the funny thing about people who want to be president. They still want to be president even after they lose an election or a primary. Bernie Sanders also making noises about running for president in 2020. Also shouldn't. Interestingly, there seems to be significant overlap between the people on the Twitter machine who thought Nancy Pelosi should step aside because never mind that she just led the Dems to a historic victory in the House. We need new faces in leadership on the left. A lot of those same people seem to want Bernie to run again, despite the fact that his face isn't exactly in its original packaging. Quick suggestion. Hillary should announce that she does not intend to run unless Bernie runs, in which case she will too. Not to treat us to a retread of the 2016 Democratic primaries, but to spare us from that retread. I'm out if you're out, Bernie, but I'm in if you're in, she should say. My short list of other Dems who shouldn't run in 2020, Joe Biden, also making noises. John Kerry, also making noises. Al Gore, not making noises, but just still tossing that out there right now. Speaking of the Clintons, I am constantly amazed by the way Chelsea Clinton handles her haters who are legion and toxic. Take, for example, Katie Hopkins, who leveraged an appearance on the British version of The Apprentice to a career as a right-wing political pundit. Has anything good ever come out of a single iteration of that awful show? Anyway, Katie Hopkins, she had this to say at a speech she gave at a right-wing conference slash shit show in Washington, D.C. last week. I watched Ilan Omar win Minnesota's 5th Congressional District with a heavy heart. Didn't she marry her brother? Like, Interbreeding is how we ended up with Chelsea Clinton, guys. Uh, Chelsea Clinton responded to Hopkins on Twitter by writing, Hi, Katie. My parents aren't siblings. Hadn't heard that one before. As much as I hoped for a sister or brother growing up, I'm an only child. Most grateful today to be my kid's mom and for the endless love and joy we create together. Wishing you a holiday season full of love and joy. More class in her morning piss than Katie Hopkins has in her whole body. Now, Katie Hopkins wasn't the first high-profile right-wing asshole to insult Chelsea Clinton's appearance. Remember John McCain, the recently sainted John McCain? When Chelsea Clinton was still in high school and living in the White House under that microscope, McCain told this quote-unquote joke to a room full of Republican donors. Do you know why Chelsea Clinton is so ugly? Because Janet Reno is her father. That remark, packed into 15 words, several layers of misogyny, Ed Plinkenton said in The Guardian, it disparaged the looks of Chelsea, then 18 and barely out of high school. It portrayed Reno as a man at a time that she was serving as the first female U.S. Attorney General, and it implied Hillary Clinton was engaged in a lesbian affair while the Monica Lewinsky scandal was blazing. John McCain made that joke in 1998, of course. That was before social media, when it was easier for parents to protect their children from the mean girls in high school and the U.S. Senate. So here's hoping Chelsea didn't find out about that one when she was 18 years old and still the first daughter. 
Speaking of first daughters, Ivanka Trump, ugly inside, complicit inside and out, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post this week about children, not about the children the Trump administration is holding in cages still, or about the children the Trump administration is gassing at the border. No, about the children the Trump administration is protecting. I would pick it apart, but Michael Hobbs, long-form journalist for HuffPo and the co-host of You're Wrong About, a terrific podcast that you should be listening to, already picked it apart on Twitter, picked it apart better than I could, and here's Michael now to pick it apart for us. So Ivanka's op-ed is about the 25 million people worldwide who are trafficked into forced labor and sexual exploitation. And that number comes from the ILO. And the problem with that number is that human trafficking is defined so broadly as to include almost everything. So the ILO definition that that number comes from includes people who are in any form of forced labor at all. So people who are in debt bondage, people who are in labor conditions that they can't leave, people whose employers confiscate their passports. So it's basically a measure of anyone who's exploited by their employer for almost any reason. Only one quarter of those people are taken across country lines. And what's even more important is that a very small number of the victims of human trafficking, quote unquote, are children. It's only about one million children in the world are engaged in commercial sexual exploitation, according to the same numbers that Ivanka is citing. And the vast majority of those children are being exploited in their home countries. They are in Cambodia. They are in Thailand. They are in poor countries and they're in poor situations where they are getting into prostitution for the same reasons that people get into prostitution here. They're just desperate and there's no other option for them. And so using those numbers, it's they're taking the broadest definition possible and they're trying to apply the most extreme version of it. So she then pivots to talking about all the things that the Trump administration is doing to prevent human trafficking of children in America. But the fact is, we know what the problems of children in America are, right? It's that they're poor and they don't have school lunches and their parents have to have work requirements to get on food stamps. I mean, the reason why we're getting into prostitution in the United States is not because they're sold out of shipping containers or something, right? It's because they don't have any systems propping them up. And so for an administration that's putting kids in cages and who wants to cut Medicaid and who doesn't renew CHIP so that kids can get free health care, to then turn around and say, oh, well, there's this extremely narrow form of child exploitation that we're interested in, and it's the only form of child exploitation that we're interested in. There's this one tiny little thing that they want to look at, but they don't want to look at the way that children in general are being exploited and are being vulnerable in this entire country, right? So it's very rare that children are sort of bought and sold like little widgets throughout the country. That's not that common. What is common is that kids are really poor and their parents can't get work and they can't get work and they get lured into doing something really bad. And so if you want to actually solve the exploitation of children in America, you would give them school breakfast and school lunches. You would give them Medicaid. You would make sure they're well-educated. You would make sure they have decent housing conditions. They're not being made homeless. I mean, if you really want to deal with children, you know, you wouldn't look at the the kind that's affecting the smallest possible number of them. You know, you, you'd look at the foster care system and you look at education. And so it's profoundly disingenuous for this administration to act like, ooh, why don't we care about the children? When it's like, Everyone cares about the children except for them. They only care about this one form of exploitation. 
Thank you, Michael. I get the sense that you don't think the Trump administration really cares about children, trafficked or otherwise. We've seen this before. I mean, they only care about the form of childhood exploitation where they can blame pedophiles and creeps and gay people for it. They're not interested in actual children. And before we let you go, you're wrong about your podcast. What's it about? Uh, it's about this and many other things that people are wrong about. So things like shaken baby syndrome, the Duke lacrosse case, lots of things that we uh, tend to misinform ourselves about in the public imagination. It's a terrifically funny show and you have a terrific rapport with your co-host, Sarah Marshall. Everyone should be listening to your wrong about. Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks, Dan. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, Kate Julian from The Atlantic joins us to discuss her new piece on kids today and why they aren't having sex. Hi, Dan, and Tech Savvy Advocacy. I am a 21-year-old uh, male in California, and I had a question about group sex. Uh, context, I have had it a couple of times, but each time I've tried, yeah, I have a problem getting up and staying up. And I don't know if it's a weird anxiety issue or if it's a physiological issue. Uh, and I just wanted to see if you had any pointers, any system pointers or comments about it. Trust your gut. Also, trust your dick. If you go to this kind of party and your dick doesn't show up with you repeatedly, and you've gone often enough that it's not just first-timers, nerves. Maybe this just isn't the right scene for you. Maybe this doesn't turn you on. Maybe you have a kind of situational performance anxiety when there's a crowd that makes group sex not your sex. So go a few more times. See if your comfort level increases. See if after you get to know some of the people who attend whatever group sex party you go to regularly, if that doesn't help you click in and feel more comfortable being intimate and, and sexual in front of others. But if your dick continues not to cooperate in this environment, then it's not the right environment for your dick. Hey, Dan, I'm the tech savvy Iris youth. I am 22 from Chicago, and my problem that I'm dealing with is with work and my, my boyfriend and how to sort of navigate myself in this situation so basically the problem that i'm having is that my boyfriend has been in the sales world for several years now he's 26 and um he really hates it he really really does which you know is understandable i've been in sales myself it's hard and recently he's been going through a kind of like a crisis about it and he got a new job but he found out that you know it really wasn't what he was looking for and he thought it was the solution that he needed from his last bad job that wasn't working out for him. And, you know, it just it's just obvious that it's not and it's really messing with his mental health and all of this. And so he asked me if um, I could help him get a job at my company. And I work kind of like a personal assistant and I love my job and I take it so, so seriously and, you know, seeing him having gotten this job and realizing that it wasn't for him, I really don't want him to get into this job that I have um, and realize that it's not for him and that it's really stressful and that, it's, you know, it's not the magic solution, which is, which is really what I kind of first see happening. But he very well may be good at the job. I don't know. And he may, and it's very different from sales. And it, I personally love my job. So am I being a shitty person for, like, not being sure about h helping him get this job? Like, 
I, I just don't know. I don't know if I should feel bad for this or if I should just go ahead and, and help him. And if he doesn't get the job, then that's just what happens. Like, I don't know. I don't know. And what do I do with a boyfriend who just is struggling to get a job and it's affecting his mental health and our relationship and we're not having sex a whole lot. Like how long, how long does this happen for? I'm not used to this. I'm new to the job world and it's overwhelming. And what do you do when you love your job and your boyfriend doesn't? You are not responsible for your newish. You're only 22. You don't say how long you guys have been together. I can't imagine it's very long. You're not responsible for his happiness. You're not responsible for his employment. You're not his career counselor. You're his girlfriend. And you've seen him get and hate two jobs. And this guy is now asking you to help him get a job at the place where you work, a job that you love and presumably a company that you enjoy working for. And that requires you to go and perhaps vouch for him. And then if he turns out to hate that job too and be a terrible employee, that's going to reflect badly on you. He's asking you to take a risk for him that sounds like it might be not advisable to take. And life is long and full of struggles. And what he's demonstrating to you right now is that when work is tough, he's going to be unhappy and your relationship is going to suffer and your sex life is going to suffer. Is that the guy you want to be with for the rest of your life? Because there will be periods of stress over the course of your life and his life as a couple if you stay together forever. And if whenever he's unhappy, you have to fix it, you have to become the counselor or couple's counselor or roofer or plumber or whatever the fuck it is that you need at that moment to alleviate the stress. Is that a role you want to play in his life for the rest of your life? So there are questions you need to ask yourself about this relationship that go a little deeper than do I help my boyfriend get a job where I work? You can help your boyfriend get a job somewhere the fuck else your boyfriend can also get off his ass and get himself a job somewhere fucking else that just circles back to my initial point which is you are not a career counselor and this isn't your problem to solve this is his problem to solve and at this stage in your relationship and i'm just guessing you guys haven't been together that long because you're only 22 years old you're still deep in the discovery process you're still figuring out whether he's someone that you want to be with and if he can't take care of himself, if he can't find himself a job without his girlfriend landing it for him, if he can't have a job that he doesn't like and still be a decent partner, maybe he's not the right boyfriend for you. Say nothing of the right coworker. Dear Dan, I've been dating my boyfriend for a year this Saturday. He is 49 and I'm 41. Things have been getting better and better, and I've been very happy with the relationship. About six weeks ago, he broke his leg, and I happily moved in with him temporarily to help with meals, cleaning, etc. While I was happy to help him in any way that he needed, I was a little sexually frustrated because he was not able to have sex and wasn't getting me off in other ways either. Last Sunday, I went back to my house. The following Tuesday, I was having this intense feeling of unease regarding my boyfriend and couldn't pinpoint why. I laid down to meditate and try to get clear on what it might be. Without even thinking, I got up, went to Facebook, logged into his account, and opened his messenger. I saw a message to a girl that used to work for him asking what happened to her awesome picture. She said, you mean this one? And sent a dirty picture of herself. He said, oh man, yes, one hot pick, torture. 
that can't be the only pic you want to share with your old friend. Then it went on to him saying, we have to hang out sometime. And her saying, definitely, I'll be in touch. My immediate reaction was that I never wanted to speak to him again. I went there, packed up my things, and left without talking about it. The next day, we got together to discuss. He said he was really sorry and that he didn't even think about it before he did it. He said he felt like he was being funny at the time. He said he was an idiot and that he was really embarrassed. He felt bad that he did this to me when I've been nicer to him than anyone in his life has ever been. I told him how I felt so stupid for reaching out for comfort from the very person that hurt me. We've seen each other every day since then, and I feel like I can't let him go. I wish this never happened. Anytime I'm with him, I decide I want to be with him. Anytime I'm alone, I can't stop obsessing. Should I stay or should I go? So there's a lot of not thinking that goes on in this relationship. You do a lot of not thinking. You got up from your meditation session and without thinking opened his Facebook and logged into his Facebook messenger and read his private messages. You snooped. And what you discovered when you snooped is that he was swapping some dirty messages with somebody. Somebody he also told he might want to see in person sometime and that was legitimately concerning. And you wouldn't know that if you hadn't snooped. And I don't buy that you weren't thinking or that you approached the computer in some sort of trance or zombie-like state and couldn't help yourself and a Russian bot took control of your brain and forced you to open his Facebook messenger and read his private messages. You did that with thinking. Also, your boyfriend says that he wasn't thinking when he swapped these text messages and asked for pics from this person that he finds attractive. Not thinking. Of course he was thinking. He was thinking with his dick, perhaps, but definitely thinking. And what was he thinking? He was thinking this other person is hot. Of course, if you're listening to the show, you know that being in a relationship, even a committed monogamous relationship, doesn't mean that your partner doesn't find other people attractive. They do. doesn't mean your partner doesn't want to fuck other people. They do. It means they don't fuck the other people that they find attractive if they're going to honor that monogamous commitment. So, If you want to be with this guy, you're going to have to get to a place where you can forgive this guy and let this go and not obsess about it. If you aren't capable of forgiving him and letting this go and ceasing to obsess about it, then you're going to have to break up with him because being in this relationship will just be torture for you and for him too if you're constantly spun up about this. What you need to focus on, where the conversation needs to really go is – What did you mean by let's get together in person sometime? Because that wasn't just you're hot, but I'm in a relationship. But hey, I'd like to look at your picture because maybe I'm going to have a wank. That means I want to fuck you. That means I want face to face or face to puss or whatever. Face to whole time. Was he making plans to cheat? Now, some people make plans to cheat that they don't act on. Making a plan to cheat doesn't mean someone was going to go through with it. People will walk up to the abyss stand at the abyss, and then turn and walk away from it. You'll have to hear him out, and you'll have to assess whether when he tells you that he had no intention of cheating, he was just fantasizing about getting together with this person, maybe, but would never have gone through with it, whether you believe him when he tells you that. And that's what he'll tell you. And only you in the room with him are going to be able to judge his sincerity. And you're going to have to be careful that your desire for what he tells you to be true doesn't too much impact your assessment of how sincere he's being and how sincerely regretful he is and how sincerely apologetic he is. And if you stay together, you both need to take responsibility for your actions. 
You can't play this. I wasn't thinking when I got off my ass, walked to my computer, opened a browser, logged into your Facebook account, opened your messages and read them all. You were thinking the entire time, just as he was thinking the entire time he was sexting with that other woman. And I'm not 100% opposed to snooping. Sometimes when you snoop, you find out a thing that you had a right to know. And you maybe had a right to know this, that he was flirting with other women in this way. But you have to take responsibility for your actions. I am not a fan of, I wasn't thinking. Own it. You snooped. And you found out something you had a premonition about. You found out something perhaps that you had needed to know and you had a right to know. But you did that. You weren't in a trance. Hi, my boyfriend and I have been in an open relationship, but we had a really clear, explicit agreement, no unprotected sex with other people. And I found out this week that he had had unprotected sex with someone else, had not told me, and had unprotected sex with me, and then only revealed this information when I confronted him, which felt like a pretty big breach of trust since we'd said, you know, like if one of us slips up, it's not the end of the world, but we need to tell each other immediately so that we can use protection and get tested again and everything. And um, meanwhile, (laughs) this is, you know, happening during the Kavanaugh news and I've been reliving um, a like a pretty cut and dry sexual assault that happened a, a couple of years ago. And so I'm having trouble separating um, where all my anger is coming from, like, and, uh, and my sadness and stuff. And I, I shared what happened with my boyfriend, just the lie about the unprotected sex thing And everyone seems, I shared that with a couple of my close friends, and it seems pretty unanimous that it wasn't cool, but people are torn on whether it's really a big deal or not. So I I just wanted to see what your thoughts on on that are, uh, whether it's a big deal or not. You didn't say uh, when you recorded your message how long you guys have been together, you and your boyfriend. A few months. We started out pretty casual, and then we really pushed for like a relationship relationship so (laughs) i'm not really sure when to count it but we've been seeing each other for not super long time a few months and he pushed for a commitment for a relationship relationship for the boyfriend gong and yeah soon after that push did you guys negotiate an open relationship um right away because we didn't live super close to each other. So it's like, I, I think I need more attention than that. <laughs> uh-huh. Are you still long so, distance? Yeah. We are no longer together. Oh, you broke up. Yeah. Good. That's what I was going to tell you to do. <laughs> oh. so, uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, you guys broke up. When did you break up? Why did you break up? Um, we broke up uh, about a week ago. Cause at first like, I, well, I tried to break up with him as soon after he told me that he had unprotected sex with someone else and then unprotected sex with me. And Which is a pretty serious oh, violation. Yeah. It's not just that he had unprotected yeah. sex. I think, you know, pausing here for others who are in open relationships who have this kind of agreement, what you described, an open relationship, no unprotected sex with others, if you slip up, 
tell me. And the, right. the, the flip, you know, the follow through with that is if you tell me right away so that we can return to using condoms ourselves in our relationship and both of us get tested, the, the deal has to be I won't break up with you so long as you disclose right away. You slipped up, you fucked up, but tell me. Don't put me at risk to, to, to save the relationship, right? Don't hide this from mm-hmm. me and imperil my health because you're afraid that I might break up with you if you told me. I promise not to break up with you if you tell me. But he didn't tell you. Yeah. And actually, like what you just said, we'd had that conversation too. I'm like, I won't, like, if you mess up, like, I just need, I won't be happy about it, but like, it won't like be the end of the world. You just need to let me know so we can use Cause the da- condoms again. The danger in making an open relationship deal where, you know, we're open. If you slip up and have unprotected sex with anybody else, it's over. Well, then if that person slips up and has unprotected sex with somebody else, they have this huge incentive not to tell you the truth and to put you at risk. And to power through, fingers yeah. crossed, hope they didn't get something, hope they didn't give you something. And that's often how people wind up getting in, you know, a sexually transmitted infection in an open relationship. Because the deal is if you slip up, it's over. And so someone slips up and they then shut up. And you need somebody if they slip up to open up about the accident, about the, the, the you know, shitty judgment and the, the poor impulse control and the whatever else factor, the alcohol or drugs or whatever else factored into the slip up. You need them to be able to talk about that so as not to put you at risk and so as to course correct so it doesn't happen again in the future um and that's sometimes hard for people to wrap their heads around you know we have an open agreement if you slip up with somebody else i won't break up with you over that so long as you tell me because a lot of people want to make that a you know instant breakup uh, offense and making it an instant breakup offense puts you at risk yeah totally (laughs) So I'm glad you broke up with him. How did he take it? Lesson learned, or is he incorrigible? Um, I don't know. Well, I tried to break up with him right away after he um, told me that he'd, you know, broken our agreement and then put me at risk, and it didn't stick. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we made all these really ridiculous agreements to like rebuild trust and we're like yeah let's just close the relationship that'll be fine and then i think we both were like this doesn't seem like something uh, like a relationship either of us are very happy with right now so uh we broke up like a few days later (laughs) for real well well good and yeah and having come through is this your first open relationship yeah it is yeah well let's do an exit interview quickly so are open relationships something that you would want to have in the future because this guy turned out to be a shit or are you still open to open relationships? Um, I, well, I definitely have some healing to do, (laughs) but, um, I think like if I was to do an open relationship again, it would really need to be with someone with better communication skills. (laughs) This this sometimes gets me in trouble with, uh, open and poly folks. I think it's good to have a long period of, of monogamy before opening up the relationship because an open relationship requires kind of a, you know, a, a degree of trust and you can't trust somebody if you really yeah. don't know them. And of course you can be in a closed relationship as you're learning whether you can trust this person and that person can be cheating on you the whole time um, and, and demonstrate to you that they are not trustworthy. But, you know, if you're going to open the relationship, I think it's often more successful. The, the ones I've been in, the ones I've witnessed, when there was a period at the start 
where monogamy, even if it wasn't the default setting and they just kind of like backed into it, but they like chose monogamy for a time just to build trust. And because at least initially they weren't really interested in fucking anybody else because NRE was there for them. Uh, and then to open mm-hmm. the relationship after a year or six months or a couple of years, when the person has proven to you in, in, in many ways, not just sexually, that they are worthy of your trust. And that takes time. You can't. That's an excellent point. You can't be yeah. there in a couple of months. But I don't want you to do that thing that, that a lot of people do where they're, they're in an open relationship and it comes to shit because the other person was awful. And then they go, well, I will never be in an open relationship again. When it wasn't the open relationship that's problem, it was the open relationship with the shitty person. And when people are in a monogamous relationship and it comes to shit because the person they were in a monogamous relationship with a shitty person, people typically don't say, I'm never doing monogamy ever again. They say, mm-hmm. wrong person. We should be able to say that in an open relationship too. Wrong person. Not necessarily the relationship model was at fault. I was in that relationship with a shitty person. And that can be the case in closed or open relationships. Yeah, I think I'd try it again, but I like your suggestion of make sure you can trust them first. <laughs> yes, always make sure you can trust them first. Um, well, I'm glad you're out of the relationship. That's what I was calling to tell you to do. So we were psychically linked perhaps earlier in the week when I first listened to your call. Well, thank you so much for calling. It was awesome. I love your show, love your column and everything. Well, well thank you. And good luck with, in your next relationship, hopefully with someone who isn't shitty. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Dan. Um, in the wake of Me Too and the shit show that is our government right now, I've really been struggling to make sense of my own experience. There's nothing to be done about it now, but I am too, I guess I'm looking for validation that I'm not just feeling sorry for myself. In my teens, I struggled with depression and saw a therapist at age 17, and he helped me tremendously. At age 19, I was still seeing him and was convinced that I loved him and was in love with him. I told him this, and after briefly refusing my feelings, he came back, returned them, and we began a relationship. I was 19, and he was 45. We eventually married when I was 23, had a son when I was 25, and I left him just shy of my 30th birthday. To this day, some of his friends still think I ruined his life. I'm 43 now. Our son is 18 and a wonderful kid. My ex is a fantastic father. I'm remarried and the mom to an 11-year-old daughter. When I look at her and hear all the Me Too stories and listen to the horror that is Brett Kavanaugh and everything else that's going on, I find myself wondering, where was everybody when I was 19? My parents said that I was so precocious I would have done it anyway so they didn't fight me. All of his colleagues gave him a pass because he was such a nice guy. My friends were all 19 too, so what the fuck did they know about anything? To this day, 20 years later, I'm consumed with shame. I stumble over the question, how did you even meet one another? (laughs) I still think I ruined his life sometimes. I don't know what to tell our son about how we met. I often think I'm just feeling sorry for myself. There's no action to take against him now. We are friendly. Our son is off to college soon. He is retired. I don't feel the need for revenge or retribution. I just want to know if I'm crazy. Did I do it to myself? Should I have expected someone to step in, even if I would have been furious at the time? My son is great. He's a great joy in my life, and I do not regret him for a moment. And yet I regret the circumstances. I regret that I can't answer the question How did you meet dad? I regret that I feel that I could have been a better mother if I'd been older. 
I sometimes feel like my 20s were stolen. Overall, I'm very, very fortunate and privileged, but I'm also really mad and ashamed to actually tell anybody the truth. I was even ashamed to make this call. I've been thinking about it for a month and worried about the judgment either about my asinine decision or my prolonged pity party 20 years after the fact. I myself would have enormous compassion for anybody who would come to me in this situation. I would not judge, and yet I still question the validity of my own sadness and my own anger. I'd appreciate your thoughts, Dan. So your ex-husband, when you were 17, before you married, was your therapist. At 19, you told your therapist that you were in love with him, and he told you he was in love with you too, and you guys ran off together and he married you. I think you have a right to be eternally angry about his actions, his choices at that moment. He had a responsibility when his 19-year-old patient or former patient, I'm not sure which it was, confessed that she was in love with him to say thank you and goodbye as kindly and compassionately as he could. It is a violation of ethics and licensing for therapists or counselors to fuck their patients. And it is common, common enough to almost be a cliche for the emotional bond that can be created in therapy to be understood as or to become or to be felt as love by the patient, for patients to fall in love with their therapists or their counselors or their psychiatrists or psychologists is a fucking cliche because it happens. And therapists and counselors and psychologists and psychotherapists, they know that it is their responsibility when that common thing happens to shut it down. And he didn't shut it down. Then he blames you for ruining his life because he failed to honor the ethics codes of his profession. He failed as a therapist at that moment to do what a therapist or counselor is supposed to do at that moment. Yeah, you did not destroy his life. He hurled himself on the rocks. He blew it up. He smashed it to bits himself. But that was decades ago. And where are we now? You have a great relationship with him as a co-parent. You still have affection for him. You regard him as a really good parent. You're in a wonderful new relationship. You have one child from your relationship with your therapist from that marriage who you love, who wouldn't exist without that relationship, without his failure, without your therapist's failure. Your son, whom you love, would not exist. And in a way, you wouldn't be where you were in your life when you met the man you're with now if it weren't for everything that happened to you before. So you wouldn't have the 11-year-old child by this new man that you have, this kid that you love. That kid wouldn't exist either. Now, maybe in some alternate reality, there would be other relationships, other husband or husbands, other kids that you would love just as much. Other kids who don't exist because these kids exist. But would you want to... Trade those kids in, the kids that you have in, for kids to be named later, for alternate kids that you haven't met because they don't exist? Would you want to risk what you got to turn the clock back? Probably not. So I can understand why you're so conflicted because there was this fork in the road and you were violated at that fork in the road. And so much good stuff, so much that you value in your life has flowed from that failure. And it wasn't your failure. You were 19 years old. It was his failure, your ex-husband's failure. He failed his profession. He failed himself. He failed his other family. He failed you. 
at that moment. And I think you have a right to be angry about that forever. But instead of feeling conflicted about it, I think you should try to pivot to compartmentalizing it. There is this that I am angry about. You failed me. You failed us. You failed your family when you failed to shut this down. And you had to know that it was common for 17-year-old, 18, 19-year-old patients to fall in love with their doctors or their therapists or their counselors. You had to know that. And you had to know what you were supposed to do at that moment and you did not do it. And I think you have a right to be angry about that forever. Wall it off from the joy that you feel and the love that you feel for your son, for your daughter, for your new husband, even the affection that you feel for your ex-husband, that that can be legitimate and exist at the same time with your anger at his failure when you were 19 years old, not to shut this fucking down, not to shut you down at that moment. After that question, how did you meet dad? If your son is asking you that question, if others have asked you that question, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You can tell the fucking truth. You are not the bad guy. In that story, I fell in love with my therapist and he fell in love with me and we ran off together. And isn't that fucked up? I didn't fuck up. I was 19 years old. I didn't know my hole from an ass in the ground. He should have known better. You have nothing to be ashamed of. He does. Stop carrying his shame. You didn't destroy his life. He destroyed his life through his own professional failure. And if you want to have that conversation with others, you can. And you can say, yeah, isn't that just the fucking way it goes? Like a shitty thing happens and a lot of other things happen as a result of that shitty thing happened that turn out to be good things. Like have you met my daughter? Have you met my son? I wouldn't trade them in for anything. But yeah, that was fucked up. And it wasn't my fuck up. It was my ex-husband's fuck up. Or you can tell people who ask, yeah, it was kind of a messy situation and it's not anything I don't like to talk about casually. So, so how did I meet your dad or how did I meet my first husband? That's a long story. Maybe after we get to be really close, I'll share it with you. But just like your fucking ex-husband should have shut it down. When you said, I love you, you can shut it down. When people ask you questions that you don't want to answer and you don't have to answer and you don't have to feel bad about not wanting to answer. You're not the only person out there who has a, a, a story like this. And I don't mean an identical set of circumstances. I mean, something shitty happened to them. Something terrible happened to them. And the result of that terrible thing they wound up meeting people or being in places or having other experiences as a direct result of that terrible thing that turned out to be wonderful things, things that they value, things like your kids that they wouldn't trade for anything. And a lot of people have to sit with that. This awful thing happened and now I'm glad that awful thing happened because without that awful thing, this great thing wouldn't have happened. Put those two things on the scale, the awful things, the great things. And if the great things that flowed as a direct result from that awful thing, if they outweigh by a lot the awful thing, allow that to be some compensation. Allow that to be a consolation. Hi, Dan. I need advice on how to handle um, a friend that has been in an on-again, off-again relationship about over a year ago, she dated this guy who I hate. She dated him for about a month, and then he broke up with her because he did not feel any sparks. 
then she kind of forced her way back into his life and became his booty call for about a year. Would come crying to me every time she she wouldn't want to be her boyfriend. On top of him just kind of taking advantage of her, he is like a racist right-wing prick. So on top of that, they finally got back together after she kind of ended things with him. Want to get back with her because she was the only one he would ever want to be with in his entire life. That's what he told her. And he broke up with her again after a month. This relationship really, really sucks, and she knows it because she's losing a tremendous amount of weight around him because of stress. She just told me she got back together with him again after about two or three times of breaking up. And every time she breaks up with him, she calls me in the middle of the night, expects me to drop everything, and sleep over her house several times, and also her sleep over my house several times. And it's coming to the point where I don't feel like I can be a good friend to her anymore because I feel like she's the girl who cried wolf. So now that she got back together with him, I told her I can't be a good friend to you if we break up with you. And she thought that was very harsh and was sad and upset that I wasn't going to come for her when it didn't work out because she knows she knows it's not going to work out. So do you think I'm an asshole for telling her that? You're not an asshole. You get to have boundaries. In a romantic relationship, in a friendship, you get to have boundaries. No one wants to be taken advantage of in a romantic relationship or manipulated, jerked around, abused, and nobody wants to be treated that way in a friendship kind of relationship. And she's treating you that way. Your friend keeps, I don't know, bashing her head against the same brick wall or placing her hand on the same red hot stove and getting the same injury and then running to you for comfort and advice and insight, which you have provided to her again and again and again and again until you are sick of providing it to her. And in a way, your friend obviously enjoys this. She enjoys being at the center of all of this drama and agitas. And it's not enough for her just to involve herself in this racist piece of shit guy she's semi-obsessed with in that drama. She wants to pull in her friends. She wants to be the star of this passion shit show. And that requires an audience. And I guarantee that you are not the only friend that she is pulling this with. Not the only friend that she's calling in the middle of the night. Not the only family member who's expected to dance attendance upon her feelings when the inevitable and the predictable happen again. You tell her you are done. You would like to be her friend. You never wish to have this conversation with her again. The conversation about this asshole. And that when she's with him, you don't want to hang out. And when she's just been dumped by him, you're not going to listen to her unload about it. She knows how you feel. She knows what she needs to do. You've talked about it and you're done talking about it. And that doesn't make you an asshole. It makes you the opposite. Sometimes this kind of person, someone like your friend who's just like wrapped up in this toxic fucking bullshit shit show of a relationship, this on and off garbage It isn't until friends start peeling off, people stop indulging them, caring for them, rushing to their side when they're having the big predictable sad because it's over again. It isn't until they start to lose that support that they see, oh, this can't go on endlessly. Everyone's tired of this. And the show is closing. The curtain's going down. I don't have an audience anymore. So maybe I need to 
do things differently. Maybe I need to get out of this and end it. Because if I can't hack this relationship without the love and support of all of these exhausted people who are sick of hearing about this, yeah, maybe it has to be over then. You know what they say about hitting rock bottom, that cliche often applied to substance abuse. That when people hit rock bottom that they know they need help. The same is often true in shitty toxic relationships. And hitting bottom often looks like this. Friends saying, I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to hear about it anymore. And that's what you told her. You had every right to tell that to her. And I want you to stick to your fucking guns. She calls you at 3 a.m. because she's having a sad about this asshole. Don't answer the phone. Hang the fuck up on her if you answer the phone by accident. She brings it up when you're together, the hand in front of the face waving. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear about it. You know how I feel. You can play that tape in your head. We don't have to waste any more of my time conversing about this. And if she doesn't want to be your friend on those terms, then you're out. You're good. You're gone. You don't have to be her friend anymore. Sounds like she doesn't want a friend. Sounds like she wants an audience. Rip up your ticket and go home. Hi, Dan. I am a 15-year-old cisgender female, married for 30 years. We have children and grandchildren, and we live in the Midwest. My issue is with a friend of mine. We went to school together from kindergarten to 12th grade. We were a small class of about 50 kids, so we were all pretty close all through school. Since graduation, the two of us have gone our separate ways. We both got married and had kids. I stayed in the same area where we grew up. He moved away and then moved back. Over about the last year or so, we've been more in touch than ever before, mainly because of social media and its ability to get in touch with people you've lost touch with. He has told me that he had a crush on me when we were in school, but his parents never let him date, so he couldn't ask me out. I had no idea at the time that he had a crush on me. It was not reciprocated then. But apparently, now he thinks we should have some sort of fuck buddy relationship. Um, A little background on each of us. I have been happily married for 30 years. We have a great sex life and a great non-sex life. My friend has been married for about 24 years, I think, and has a non-existent sex life. And basically, his wife and son hate him. He won't get a divorce, however, because he doesn't want to be alone. And he's afraid it will mess up his son, who is an adult, but he still thinks it will mess him up. And his wife will not get a divorce because... He is her sole support. She does not work. She just lives off of him. Because of that, he wants to get laid desperately, and I'm the one he has his sights set on. I have no desire to fuck him. I'm completely happy with fucking my husband on a regular basis. I have told him this, but he keeps asking and suggesting we should just try it. I have been kind in my rejection, and I have been cruel in my rejection. Doesn't stop him either way. His latest attempt is to hint that if I don't fuck him, he is going to commit suicide because basically without getting laid, he has nothing to live for. This is way too much pressure on me. I don't want to be the cause of his death if he's even serious about it, but I don't want that thought or implication floating around. How can I get across to this guy that I am happy with my husband and don't want to mess up my marriage? By the way, my husband knows all the details of what is going on as well, and my friend knows that he knows but he doesn't care. Block him. Stop talking to him. He's taking himself hostage. He's hinting he might commit suicide in order to manipulate you into continuing to at least speak to him, if not fuck him. And he will turn up the temperature. He will up the ante so long as it works. 
And right now it's working. You've been nice in your rejections. You've been cruel in your rejections. But you've continued to spit out rejections, which means you've continued to entertain his questions and to allow him to take up residence in your brain. And you don't have to allow for that. You are not responsible for your quote-unquote friend's misery. You don't have to be nice to someone who has no boundaries. You don't have to be nice to someone just because he's miserable, particularly when he refuses to respect your no. He refuses to take your unequivocal no for an answer and keeps pestering you for sex. If he was some stranger on a bus, you'd move or call the police, alert the bus driver. You'd get the fuck away from this person. This asshole, just because he went to high school together 30 years ago, deserves no more consideration than a creepy asshole on a bus. Block him. Block him on Facebook. Block him on Twitter. Block him on Instagram. Block his email address. Block his phone number. Block him. And when he asks, he will get no response or he'll get the bounce and know that you have now blocked him. You can even say, look, I'm blocking you. Can't take this anymore. Stop pestering me for sex. This is now harassment. And he's not going to go through with his threat to commit suicide. That is a narcissist's move. He's trying to control and manipulate you. And it's working. And he's going to keep at it until it stops working. And the way to make sure that he understands that it's no longer working is that he can no longer ask because you've blocked his ass everywhere. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk to Kate Julian. She is the author of the Atlantic cover story this month, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? And she's got the stats. She's got the data. Teens are launching their sex lives later. The percentage of high school students who've had intercourse dropped from 54 to 40 percent between 1991 and 2017. Today's young adults have fewer sex partners than members of the two preceding generations and people are less likely to be partnered more likely to be living alone and people are losing their virginities later and later in life and joining me right now by phone to talk about her piece to talk about the sex recession and what we can do about it kate julian all right so this sex recession uh kate it is a worldwide phenomenon that's right i was actually quite surprised when i started to look into this to realize that nobody had really um sort of pulled all of these different national examples together. There's been a fair amount of media coverage here about Japan and how Japan has a group of young men who are known as herbivore men, grass-eating men, literally, who are sort of retreating from sex with other people. But what's interesting to me is that when you look at the other countries, in addition to Japan, that study their citizen sex lives, that have big national sex surveys, they're also finding decreases in sexual frequency, later onset of, um, of, of you know, sex lives, and um, sort of similar, similar trends. So we're talking here about Australia, the UK, Finland, the Netherlands. So Western industrialized uh, nations that are online. Rich, yeah, basically, basically the countries that study people's sex lives or that have the money to do that are rich countries. <laughs> so it was interesting <laughs> to read this. And, you know, there are many reasons that you give or that people give, the experts and the researchers that you spoke to. Uh, hookup culture, economic pressure, social anxieties, psychological frailty, antidepressant use, streaming television, porn, porn, porn. Everyone always seems to want to blame porn. Um, and it is true, and you, you, you prove, you show stats, that despite the fact that people are having sex less, people are masturbating more. 
And I don't know about kids today, but when I was a masturbating kid, young adult teenager, you masturbated in anticipation of the things that you wanted to do. And then you got out there and did them. And that doesn't seem to be what people are doing now when they jack off or masturbate. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would feel comfortable entirely generalizing about what people do when they jack off, but it does seem interesting to me that a lot of porn is less oriented toward fantasizing about sex with another person um, than was the case. That seems telling. Certainly some of the things that I talked about where there's this sort of whole industry of, of various um, props and services designed to sort of support masturbation that isn't really in service of a fantasy about sex with somebody else. That to me is fascinating and it does seem different. So toward the end of the piece, you drill down on what might be the cause of this. And a lot of it seems to be uh, people not knowing how to connect, not knowing how to talk to each other. It's not okay anymore to approach people at work on the street. Uh, And you show people also feel uncomfortable approaching each other in bars, in these places, these spaces that historically by entering them, you were saying, it's okay to approach me. I am in a bar. This is, I'm socializing. I'm hanging out the welcome mat, right? Uh, Or the the, the open for potentially naughty business sign. And people are increasingly, young people, younger people, millennials, increasingly uncomfortable approaching or being approached in these spaces where previously it was understood that if you were there, you were approachable. You know, I found this actually kind of shocking. And of course, yes, people do still meet each other in public spaces. One of the lovely experiences of having this piece published has been that I've heard lots of wonderful stories from people who have met, you know, significant others and partners of various sorts on subways and in bars and elevators and all the rest. But it was just a persistent theme. I think part of this has to do with the fear of rejection. Part of it has to do with phones. I hate to blame phones think so predictable, but it it has sort of changed the way we occupy public spaces when we're by ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just weirder now to talk to somebody else who's alone because they're more likely to look like they're engaged with a screen. Um, So that's certainly part of it. But I do think the rejection part of it and the anxiety and the the sort of fear of um, being turned down is an aspect of this as well. And you also unpack, you know, I talked about the piece a couple of weeks ago uh, at the top of the show. And one of the things that really uh, leapt out at me was describing so many young people, straight people today, uh, emerging from high school and even emerging from college without ever ever having dated, without ever having a significant romantic and sexual relationship, without having any experience romantic or sexual. And that really struck me because that was really true uh, for gay men, particularly gay men of my generation and Mm -hmm. a couple of generations after that most of us didn't come out in high school. I did. I was an outlier then. Um, many didn't come out until after college. So you had these people in their 20s who had never dated, had never had any practice, who then were really train wrecks, making the mistakes at 25 that our straight peers, our straight siblings, had the luxury of making and learning the lessons from at 14 and 15 often with parental supervision, whereas, you know, you're a 25-year-old gay guy, you've just moved to New York, you've just come out, you've got a credit card and an apartment and a car, and the damage that you can do by making these mistakes is magnified and multiplied by the fact that you're fucking an adult and on your own and without mom and dad there peering over your shoulder. And so I read that and was just like, oh my God, everyone's a gay kid now. All these straight people. I thought this was... 
Just such a fascinating insight of yours. Um, I, I, when I was listening to the, pod, the podcast where you make this point, I just had an aha moment. It's so true. I mean, as miserable as adolescence is for so many of us in so many ways, it is a safer space in which to be, to be rejected and, and to have your heart broken, right? Mm-hmm. Like somebody, there's a roof over your head. Somebody's going to make sure that you're fed. You're not ultimately alone, and you have adults you can turn to, mom and dad, where you say, "Oh my god, I got dumped," and mom and dad go, "Yeah, I did too. I was there. Exactly, this happened exactly. to me." You have some perspective from somebody who is not your age, which is so crucial, really. And I think that there is something funny that's happened with adolescence. And the piece I focus sort of on the kind of more familiar helicopter parent sort of version of reality, where we're talking about parents who are really pressuring their children to achieve academically. But I think adolescence has changed even for children who aren't on a college track, in part due to cell phones. I think there's sort of more monitoring of adolescence and so more of a sense that, you know, we're, that, that parents are sort of trying to keep people from getting into trouble and they know where they are at all times. I think that's part of this as well. The problem is that if we're treating sort of adolescence as like this holding pen where we have to sort of keep kids in it and keep anything bad from happening to them, we're obviously keeping them from sort of figuring out how to navigate stuff on their own. And I think also, you know, this reflects this kind of real misunderstanding of adolescent sexuality. I mean, we talk about teenagers as if they're sort of sex-crazed maniacs, you know, as if sex is this sort of unstoppable drive. And I think that sort of the comparison you're making sort of is very powerful in the sense that, you know, teenage sexuality is fragile in some ways. You know, it can be it can be tamped down. It can be crushed. It can... You know, it can absolutely uh, be stopped in its tracks, and we should think about what the consequences of that might be, you know, some years down the line. It was interesting, though, then after reading the piece and thinking, oh, my God, all the straight people are gay kids now, to to find that gay people, uh, you know, according to the people you spoke to, have more romantic success and more sexual success, that the sex recession seems to be a straight thing and not a gay thing. Yeah, I mean, this is more of a guess than anything on my part. And I just, you know, so I would sort of be curious to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, the data on gay dating relationships is just kind of lacking. Um, what I could find, you're right, suggested that there doesn't seem to be um, any ebbing. But I don't know that we know for sure. Um, you know, certainly you could say some of the phenomena I'm describing in this piece have taken place in the gay community. You know, famously sort of Tinder killed the gay bar but grinder many gay people grinder i mean sorry sorry grinder killed the gay bar but like many it seems like people who are not straight may use apps more effectively i'm not sure well there's fewer of us on the apps you know you yeah, think about tinder yeah. and you think about all straight people being on tinder that's 95 ish percent of the population being on tinder uh and you know right. we're a much smaller minority and what i hear from you know i've been with terry forever i w- never used a dating app um, when yep. I was single, what I hear from friends who are on Grinder is you end up seeing the same people all the time, and I think what mm-hmm, that communicates mm-hmm. at a certain point is you got to pick someone, at least tonight. Right. Whereas if you're straight and you're on Tinder, you never run out. It's anonymous of and paralyzing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Too much choice can be paralyzing. All right. So quickly, what do we do about this? You know, we haven't even gotten to porn yet, and, and the way porn warps people's mm. expectations. I loved what Debbie Herbenick had to say about how porn is impacting, you know, the behaviors or the expectations of young people who don't have a sex education 
deprived of a sex education that really frames and contextualizes porn. She told you when she was walking around with you at uh, Indiana University, if you're with somebody for the first time, don't choke them, don't ejaculate on their face, don't try to have anal sex with them. These are all things that are just unlikely to go over well. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really brilliant. Yeah, and it should be in a sex ed class. But you know what? You can't say that in an American sex ed class because you can't acknowledge that there are people out there who do like to be choked or like to choke. And there's a, you know, that's a kink that exists in the world. Some people do like to have someone ejaculate on their face. Some people really do enjoy anal sex. More in real numbers, straight people enjoy anal sex than gay people enjoy anal sex. And our sex education can't dive into the sex people are actually having. And, And the thing I wanted to really discuss with you because a lot of it comes down to sex education and what you found going to colleges were a lot of young adults getting sex educations that they should have gotten in middle school and high school and they have to go to college to get it and by then it's almost exactly a little too late because tastes and inhibitions are locked in in young adulthood by the time they're young adults and, and I've said this for years and I think this is really the the challenge and the problem with sex education reproductive biology is easy any idiot can make a baby. Bristol Palin made two. What's, and that's usually all that's covered in sex ed is reproductive biology. Zygotes right. Maybe some diseases. Maybe some diseases. Right. Maybe some, maybe some pro-abstinent stuff that can be quite damaging. What they don't cover in sex ed is how you talk people into fucking, which is the difficult part. How you communicate. This is sort of the thing that I'm I'm most eager to do more research and reporting on is sort of like what to do about the sex ed part of this. And obviously other people have looked at this, but it seems to me like a few things are, are, are sort of promising, perhaps. One, you know, we tend to think of this as just impossible. It's a political impossibility, right, to do anything about sex ed in this country. Part of the problem with sex ed may also be part of the solution in terms of some regions. So part of the problem is, you know, in more than half of states, there's no requirement that there be any. It's so, it's, and then within those states, it's such a patchwork, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you can have literally, you know, county by county, radically different experiences within a state. And even within a county, you know, school to school, and frankly, teacher to teacher. You could have a radically different experience within a school because there are places where people can opt out to drag their children out of sex ed classes. So some of the kids in the school are getting sex ed, but they may be sleeping with a kid who didn't right. get any sex ed. Right, right. And so I tend to think that like parents who are in favor of sex ed need to be a lot more vocal about advocating for it. Because what happens right now is that some people complain and say they don't want it and they tend to get their way, Mm -hmm. right? They put their foot down and they sort of cheat everybody of the experience. So fine, those people can take their kids out. I feel very badly for their kids, but the rest of us shouldn't sort of opt out of this just by sort of letting those people rule the day. So I think parents who are in favor of sex ed really need to become more vocal and kind of organize around this at a local level. Um, That doesn't solve the problem nationally, of course. And then we get to sort of what parents should be doing. And I think well, there's, actually, before, you know, I wait, say wait, wait, before yeah. we move on to yeah. parents, I yeah. got to yeah. say yeah. that but, when I've yeah. seen people rally yeah. around sex ed and be pro-sex ed, they're pro-reproductive yeah. biology. <laughs> Here's how to avoid disease and pregnancy and we're done. Mm. And the problem isn't that kids can't digest all of that information in an hour. Mm. You can cover all mm. of that in an hour. What is difficult mm. and challenging and scary for kids is how to negotiate a sexual and romantic relationship, how to talk to each other, how to mm. ask for what you want, how to get consent, 
how to give consent, how to withdraw right. consent. And we can't cover this because then we're telling kids to have sex and how to have sex. And that's actually the problem is that we can't tell them how and to, which is what they want to know. That's why I'm still in business 30 years later because I'm still hearing no, from 15-year-olds who want to know how and to. Yeah. I mean, I think one solution, honestly, is peer education. I was a sex peer educator in the Bay Area in the sort of like 1994, 1995, 1996, six time frame, not sex time frame. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, honestly, if you let kids do it, they can get away with a lot of stuff that educators wouldn't be allowed to get, get away with. And maybe it was the time and maybe it was the place. I don't to other people about pleasure and consent and drill down on this idea that it should feel good and it should make you happy and if it doesn't something is wrong and by the way lube is really important and do you want some lube <laughs> that is something that we could do <laughs> you know and, and and to me now sort of that, that seems almost like this distant memory it's hard for me to envision that going on in a lot of high schools and it is possible clearly it is possible I also think maybe we need relationship education like maybe we need to reframe this not as sex education, but as relationship education. And then you sort of slip some stuff in, you know, that, that, that will obviously go to sex. But I think some of this is, is sort of more basic. It, it sounds awfully corny to frame it that way. But, you know, talking to other people, consent, all of these things have to do with sort of basic relational issues. Okay, before we let you go, one last question, and we're kind of going to zoom out yeah. for a second here. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, big cover stories in national magazines wanted us to panic mm. about the sex that kids were having. And here you come with this big piece that wants us to panic about the sex that kids aren't having. How do we square that circle? <laughs> well, we first of all, please, I do not, I do not, let me just say this clearly, I do not want anybody to panic. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, sex panics never lead anywhere good because people overreact in really sort of bizarre and counterproductive ways. CF, the panic over hookup culture that you're alluding right. to. Right, hookup culture, so, rainbow please, parties. Exactly. Uh, bug exactly. chasing. So, there was the sex panic about bug chasing for gay people, gay men, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, the, yeah. the sex panics are usually about the sex people aren't having. And here comes, look at Japan. Oh, my God. Right. People aren't having sex. People aren't doing this now. What do we yeah. do? Like the sex panic now should be the sex people aren't having. How do I wrap my head around that? Well, well, so, so I guess there are two messages I would really like to leave people with, and, and they're sort of different for different groups. One is, like, if you are now in your 20s and you are unattached and you are finding this challenging, I want you to know that you are not alone. Because so much of kind of our culture is focused on the sex that people are having. I talked to so many people, dozens of people in the context of this piece who felt utterly alone and exotic because they hadn't had sex or because they were having difficulty navigating what's well, really a very changed landscape, whether it's you know, due to apps or porn or devices or all the rest of it. So it's, that's sort of the one key part of this. Just you're not weird. You know, this mm -hmm. is tough and there are things you can do about it. Um, you know, become your own sex self-educator if you need to. You know, I think I, I, I mentioned this um, on another podcast, so apologies for repeating myself, but Debbie Herbenek, who you quoted earlier, had great advice, like, go get some massages, like, get comfortable with being touched by another person. There are things that you can do to sort of take charge of, um, take charge of your own sort of uh, sensual and sexual life. 
Great advice. And then my second really big message is for like, is for like the older people, you know, whether they're the educators or the policymakers or the, the parents, is that we have to sort of, you know, this is not about blaming porn. It's just about adjusting to the reality that children, very young children, are coming to sex in this way that can be very disorienting and can give people some funny ideas. And we really need to start talking to kids earlier about the fact that, you know, there is, that, that, that porn is not necessarily bad, but that it is ultimately fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's a difference between fantasy and reality. I, as a parent of younger children, am sort of surprised by the fact that many parents, you know, my daughter is eight, haven't talked to their kids about sex, or if they do talk to them about sex, approach this in a very odd way that we wouldn't approach any other topic with our children, which is to say there's this idea that's out there that you only should answer the questions that are asked about sex and sex only. And that's fascinating to me. Like, what other really important issue would you just leave the kid to ask about? You know, would you, would you leave the kid to be the driver? None that I can think of. The piece is, why are young people having so little sex despite the easing of taboos and the rise of hookup apps? Americans are in the midst of a sex recession by Kate Julian. It is the cover story in this month's Atlantic magazine. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a great conversation. And thank you for the piece. I thought it was really terrific. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, This was a thrill. Hey, Dan. I am a 27-year-old male in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Uh, My wife occasionally masturbates, and initially I was okay with it. And I even encouraged it, but something happened, which has shifted my perspective. So she's always known that my biggest fantasy is to be with a girl that squirts. Recently, we were talking about masturbation and it came to light that she squirts when she masturbates and she has been hiding it from me all these years. I was devastated that she would keep that from me. When I asked her why, she said it was a combination of shame and her belief that sex shouldn't be about pleasing the other person, but only doing what is comfortable for yourself. Now when she masturbates, it just reminds me of how selfish she is. I asked her to include me in her masturbation in any way she could. Um, She said that she was too uncomfortable to do that, so we compromised, and she said that she would send me a picture if she did. However, I recently found out that she has continued to masturbate and hid it from me. So... Whenever she hides this from me and has no interest in satisfying my deepest fantasy, um, all the things that I admire about her are reframed into selfishness. How do I get past this? Or is she being selfish and not thinking about my desires? So your biggest fantasy is to be with someone who squirts. And it turns out that you are with someone who squirts and you are so determined to shit the bed now in every possible way that you will never actually be with that person when they squirt. Look, dude, it was lovely of you initially to be okay with your wife masturbating and even encourage it that she finally told you that this happens for her when she masturbates. She squirts when she masturbates would seem to me to be an indication that she was opening up to you. And that was an opportunity where if you had been gracious and encouraging that perhaps she would have continued to open up to you. Instead, you've been angry and controlling and she's going to shut the fuck down if you don't change course. 
You can put on the table what it is that you want, what it is that you fantasize about, but you're going to have to stop penalizing her for feeling what so many women feel about masturbation, about coming. So many women who squirt also feel, which is this shame. And that can be very paralyzing. And people who experience that shame often have a hard time even opening up to partners who have let them know that whatever this thing is that they might be experiencing, they would welcome, they would even enjoy. People doubt. Somebody says, you know what? I would always wanted to be with a woman who squirts. And their partner, who's a woman who squirts, goes, yeah, but that's because you've never actually been with one. If you're actually with one, if you actually saw what it was like, maybe you wouldn't want to. And they are just externalizing, projecting onto you the shame that they struggle with and rejecting themselves before you can reject them. Even though, of course, you probably wouldn't have a problem with it, but she's, she has the problem with it. And your assurance that you wouldn't have a problem with it, at least at this stage, isn't enough for her. And stirring your anger in and your entitlement isn't going to help. It isn't going to get her to a point where she's comfortable ejaculating all over your face, which is ultimately what you want, isn't it? Here's what you do. Here's the approach. You tell her that you are sorry for making this about you, that you recognize that she has a right to a zone of erotic autonomy and a right to even some sexual privacy, even in the context of your marriage. And if this, for the time being, is something that she needs to keep private, you can respect that and you can live with that. You can also then say, this is a fantasy of mine. I always have fantasized about being with a woman who ejaculates. You are a woman who ejaculates. It would be great if we could someday get to a point in our relationship where you felt safe enough doing that with me, where I could be in the room, where I could help, where I could be a part of that experience. Now, maybe this is something that you can only do when you're alone, where I could help, where you could let go and masturbate and have these orgasms during partnered sex with me. Even if it just means you masturbate and I hang back, you masturbate and I assist, you masturbate and I hold you, possible that she can't have these kinds of orgasms during intercourse. It's possible that she needs to go to a place of such contemplation and calmness that another person in the room is going to throw her in such a way that at the moment she won't be able to ejaculate with you in the room. It's not just that she can ejaculate at will and she's not letting you get in there. Some people have conflicts, blockages, hangups, and having a husband or a partner stamping their foot and insisting that they get to be part of this now doesn't make a hangup or a blockage evaporate. It, it reinforces it. It makes it stronger. It makes it harder to get past. Put somebody back in their head when you need her in her body. Tell her you're sorry. Again, for fuck's sake, dude, tell her you're sorry. You've been a controlling, selfish douchebag about this. You want her to keep masturbating, keep ejaculating, keep enjoying herself. And you'd like to tiptoe up to a place where maybe you could be a part of it. This is advice I've given to women who can climax through masturbation, but not with somebody there. Not with somebody in the room with them. Not during sex, during partnered sex. Masturbate while he's in the house with the door shut. Enjoy yourself. Masturbate while he's in the house with the door open with the understanding that he's not going to walk into the room or pass the room or stand in the doorway and stare. Masturbate with him in the room, but he's blindfolded and he sits in a chair and you can lean back in bed and pretend he's not there. 
And he's also not going to jack off the whole time so you don't have to listen to fap, 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 fap. He's just going to sit there quietly and be present in the room. Then masturbate with him in the bed, blindfolded. Then masturbate in him in the bed with the blindfold off, but the lights off too, without touching you. And then gradually bring that person closer and closer and closer until you can incorporate that person into your masturbatory routine. Take that approach with the wife. Lay that out for her as perhaps an approach that would result in the end if you can be calm and respectful and affirming the entire way that in the end could get you to a point where your ultimate fantasy could be fulfilled. But you're never going to get your ultimate fantasy fulfilled in this relationship or any other relationship by screaming and yelling and stomping your foot. Particularly when that fantasy relies on the other person feeling safe, feeling pleasured, feeling calm, feeling relaxed and able to let go. What you ultimately want is to be with your wife when she ejaculates You're doing everything wrong right now. Do it my way, dude. Do it my way instead, and you might get what you want. Before we get to your recorded comments, a few of your tweets. Jeannie O'Connor tweets, I heart Stormy Daniels, whose humanity, intelligence, and charm shone through on the Savage Lovecast in contrast to the slimy, evil, creepiness, and shameful behavior of the worst president ever. Completely agree, Jeannie. And if you're out there listening, Stormy, you are welcome to come back on the Lovecast whenever you have an itch to give a little sex advice. Wait, I figured it out. Tweets, now that fake Dan Savage is reading tweets on the Savage Lovecast, I have to tell him three things. Thanks for encouraging me to ask out my now boyfriend at your last live show in Madison, Wisconsin. You are welcome. Wait, I figured it out. The Magnum is the best money I've ever spent. Thanks for saying that. Nice to hear it. And you have a sexy laugh. That's a new one. Okay, I'll take it. I can take a compliment with grace. No, I can't. I'm Catholic. I cannot take a compliment with grace. Ah. And one more about Stormy. Pete P. tweets, after listening to Stormy Daniels on the Savage Lovecast, I only have one thing to say. Stormy needs her own advice podcast. The girl rocks. Don't want to see any more competitors out there that I've already got, but I have to agree. She's really good at the advice thing. If she wants to get into the advice racket, I would support her. If you want me to read your tweet on a future Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your phone in comments. Hi, this is a response about Dan and Stormy's advice to the young lady that was trying to stop shaving her legs and her armpits. And um, I had a different approach to that advice. I was thinking she could invite her partner um, in a playful kind of, a, uh, you know, fun way to do an experiment with her and say, hey, I'm really interested in, you know, not shaving my legs and my armpits. And why don't I try it for like three months? And during that time, they could look on to, um, you know, alternative porn and they could look on to social media and see all the fun people that are representing, um, you know, growing out hair and alternative things. Doing that is a good way to reprogram our brains with how we have been society and consumerism very programmed. Then maybe uh, you never know, uh, it could be a different ball game after a couple months. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the girl who is considering getting into some Dom subplay. As always, you are spot on on everything you suggested in regards to negotiations, the Dom really serving the sub. I would also recommend that she get on FetLife or some sort of internet forum and read more about brats. Because when you're a brat, your Dom or your daddy has to work for your submission. And you can rescind that invitation to submit at any time. And uh, yeah, because you're, you're a brat. So look it up. 
Hi, Dan. This is a response for the woman in episode 631 who uh, has a friend who just came out as non-binary and the caller is um, trying to like pick up some tips for the quickest way to start learning the right pronouns. My sibling came out as non-binary when they were in high school and I was in college, so I wasn't seeing a lot of them at the time, and it did take me a really long time to adjust to the correct pronouns. And one of the things that helped me was hanging out with their friends who like only know them as non-binary and use the correct pronouns fluently and without difficulty, just like learning any new language, immersing yourself with native speakers helped a lot. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Listen to me on Blabbermouth, the Stranger's weekly podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders with a regular rotating cast of Stranger writers, thinkers, employees, and assholes. That's usually my job. I am the asshole on Blabbermouth. And if you are stumped for a gift for a Savage Lovecast listener, you can always check with them, see if they're listening to the micro. You can always then gift them the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. Just click on the gray box that says gift. And you will have given them twice as much Savage Lovecast with no ads. That's the magnum. Twice as long, no ads. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Kate Julian on Twitter at KateJulian. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.